everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I am your host, Sarah Dong. I am a MedPeds ID fellow currently living in Boston. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and consult questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. We'll present pieces of the story of a patient's case, and we'll pause along the way to hear from our guest. Like usual, all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. Today, I am so excited. I am not by myself. I have a co-host, Melanie. So I'm going to let Melanie introduce herself. Thank you, Sarah, so much for having me. Uh, My name is Melanie Dubois. I'm a second year pediatric infectious disease fellow at Boston Children's Hospital and excited to join today. So let's introduce today's guest. Dr. Thea Brennan-Crone is an attending physician in pediatric infectious diseases at Boston Children's Hospital and an instructor in pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. She is also a scientist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center where she performs research investigating antimicrobial activity against resistant gram-negative bacteria. She completed a Pediatric Infectious Diseases Fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital and a Clinical Microbiology Fellowship at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Welcome to the show, Thea. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Hey. As everyone's favorite culture podcast, Uh, We like to kick off the show by asking you to share a little piece of culture that brings you joy. So I was actually a classics major when I was an undergrad, um, and I studied Greek and Latin and ancient um, Greek and Roman history, and I still really love listening to and reading about history. So I listen to a lot of podcasts about mostly either ancient history or like 20th century World War II, not too much in between, but. Um, any specific podcast recommendation? Maybe other people can add it to their list. Um, yeah, one I've been listening to a lot is Dan Snow's History Hit. He's a British guy, and he does. He always has great guests on, kind of like this podcast. Only it's about history, <laughs> and he covers all kinds of different topics. Um, he's a great host, and they're um, they're fascinating. There's you know almost anything you're interested in history. So cool. Um, Well, today, our console question is actually from the ICU. And so they have a teenage girl with fever and respiratory failure. And their request is to please assist with evaluation and antibiotics. Okay, so here we go. We have a 16-year-old previously healthy female who presents with one week of fever, chills, sore throat, and myalgias. She was initially seen by her PCP a few days before presentation, at which time a rapid flu and strep tests were performed and negative. Unfortunately, she continued to feel poorly and ultimately presented to the emergency room. She was found to be dehydrated as well as febrile with a temperature of 39 degrees Celsius. She was also tachycardic and hypotensive. She was given some fluid resuscitation but ultimately required pressors. She additionally developed hypoxia with a chest x-ray that showed multifocal pneumonia. She was placed on high-flow nasal cannula, but unfortunately required intubation for her respiratory failure. She was started on empiric antibiotics for presumed pneumonia with ceftriaxone and azithromycin. She was then admitted to the ICU, at which time her antibiotics were brought in to piperacillin tazobactam 
vancomycin and azithromycin due to her critical clinical status. Now that the patient is intubated, you can't take an additional history, but you do gather some information from her family. You learn that she's previously healthy with no major medical problems, no prior surgeries, no recent procedures or dental cleanings of any kind. Her vaccines are up to date. She had a recent COVID exposure two weeks ago from her friend, but the patient herself had a negative COVID test at the time. She lives in the Northeast US, specifically New Hampshire with her parents and sister. No recent travel due to social distancing and quarantine. She does have a pet cat named Lemmy. And since she's an adolescent, we will go through some of her head's assessment. Um, she lives at home with her parents and her younger sister. She's a sophomore in high school and works part-time at a local grocery store. She plays volleyball and enjoys skiing. Per chart review, you do note vaping and marijuana use. And her sexual history and mental health history are unknown. Labs are pending at the time. All right, so we have a critically ill teenager in the ICU. What are you thinking here? And what are the next steps as an ID consultant? So when you have a, a patient like this with respiratory, respiratory disease and fever, um, there's a pretty broad differential, but we can narrow it down a little bit um, based on both who the patient is and what her presentation was like. So I, you know, I would describe this as a kind of sub acute on subacute presentation where it sounds like she had about a week of symptoms, but not, you know, weeks and months and then got much worse fairly quickly. And, um, and as far as we know, she's previously healthy. So you can have people, of course, at this age, who have, um, underlying immunodeficiencies that haven't been diagnosed. You certainly could have somebody who has HIV that hasn't been recognized. So We'll want to find out if we're correct that she's immunologically normal, but this certainly isn't somebody who just had a stem cell transplant a few weeks ago or, or something like that. So, and she's coming in from the community. So that kind of helps us to narrow down at least what's sort of on the top of the differential. And so that would make me think of kind of at the top of the list, bacterial or viral causes for this presentation. Um, and among bacteria, if we're thinking about community acquired pneumonia of some type, then streptococcus pneumoniae is uh, at least theoretically, the most common cause, although a lot of times, especially in young people, we really don't find out um, what caused bacterial pneumonia. And this is certainly a pretty dramatic presentation for an otherwise healthy teenager. Um, there's other bacteria, of course, that can cause pneumonia, like Staph aureus and um, other respiratory organisms like Haemophilus and Moraxella. Um, but those seem maybe a little less likely in this scenario. And then we also always think of so-called atypical bacteria like Mycoplasma, um, which classically causes a less dramatic or less severe pneumonia than typical bacterial causes, but um, it can certainly present in unusual ways. So I think that's worth thinking about. And then for viral causes, this patient had a negative flu test. And of course, this year we're seeing almost no flu at all, but in a normal year, that would be one of the things I would be particularly worried about if it was flu season in an otherwise or previously healthy young person who was very sick with respiratory failure. Um, but of course, SARS-CoV-2 uh, is really important on the differential this year. And although young people don't have severe diseases often as the elderly, it certainly can happen. And so, of course, we would want to get a, a test for SARS-CoV-2, uh, the cause of COVID. And then you can have other viruses like adenovirus and things like parainfluenza and human metanumovirus that 
are on the differential as well. Um, if we were in a different part of the country than New England, you might also think about endemic fungi like coccidioides or uh, blastomyces or histoplasma. But um, although those, um, especially histo and blasto, are sometimes seen in, in less kind of typical locations and, and New Hampshire wouldn't be impossible, that would be a lot lower on the differential than if she had had a classic exposure. Um, and then some of the, you know, mycobacterial and other fungal infections, I think would be less likely again because of the acuity of presentation and the lack of any known predisposing factors. And then there's lots of things in the non-infectious differential, which I won't go into in detail, except to say that one of the items that often I think enters our differential in young adults with um, severe uh, or kind of unexplained respiratory failure and often with fever is e-valley or um, e-cigarette vaping associated lung injury. And that can really present a lot like an infectious process. And I've certainly seen cases that came in sort of looking infectious and turning out to, as far as we know, be just e-valley. And so especially with that history, but even if we didn't you know, know that for sure, that's something I'd think about in an adolescent as well. Are you happy with the antibiotic selection right now? It's Vank, Piptazo, and Azithro. I think the coverage of those three agents is you know, hits what I would want to get, which would be kind of typical bacterial causes, including pneumococcus and um, resistant pneumococcus. So I think having a broad beta-lactam on makes sense. I would want to cover MRSA until we figure out what's going on. Um, and then I think covering, again, atypical organisms with azithromycin makes sense. Um, I think that the the anaerobic coverage with peptazo might be broader um, than I would typically do. I think I might do something like ceftriaxone, vancomycin, and azithromycin in this case. Um, so I also don't know that I would necessarily do um, include pseudomonal coverage in somebody who was coming from the community, a young person without any predisposing risk factors. On the other hand, this is a very sick patient, so I think that's a reasonable consideration. One thing I do worry about with a combination of piperacillin, tazobactam, and vancomycin is acute kidney injury. Um, and personally, although this isn't sort of a guideline pneumonia recommendation yet, um, or at least not first line, I like linazolid for um, MRSA coverage, MRSA coverage in the lungs, because you have very good um, penetration of the lungs and um, you don't have to worry about kind of chasing levels like you do with vancomycin and there's less toxicity. So I might make some little tweaks, but I think that coverage is kind of getting the bugs we'd be worried about. Basically, we want broad coverage, I think, now this in this very sick teenager. Yeah. Um, so we do have some initial labs from sort of this transition into the ICU. On the CBC, we do have a leukocytosis with a white count up to 17. Hemoglobin is 8. And um, hematocrit is 25. Platelets are 80. Um, she does have an AKI even just walking in the door. Her creatinine is elevated to 1.6. Her CRP is 30. Um, and before we get too far, we do have some information back from her blood cultures. So uh, there are two sets or four bottles. And in two bottles, there are beta-lactamase negative anaerobic gram-negative rods, which are later ID'd as Fusobacterium necroforum. So before we jump back to the case, we thought maybe you could give us sort of a primer or some pearls about Fusobacterium and what we should be thinking about if we see that organism in a blood culture. Yeah, so that's a really um, interesting organism and, and something that sort of makes sense in this clinical scenario, especially with the sore throat preceding the onset of all of these symptoms. So it's an anaerobic gram-negative rod, and it's... Um, 
there's a few different kinds of fusobacterium. This one we see most commonly in um, Lemire syndrome, which could fit with this presentation. And um, these organisms, when you see them on gram stain, are pleomorphic, meaning they can appear lots of different ways. So some of them are kind of long, thin rods. Others can look shorter. Some of them can even be almost more round. Um, and that's a pretty classic gram stain appearance. The other uh, most commonly encountered type of fusobacterium, species of fusobacterium is fusobacterium nucleatum. And those look like usually long, tapered, kind of elegant rods, whereas necroforum is kind of more of a hodgepodge of things. And these can be important clues if you uh, get a gram stain result back and don't have the identification yet. The folks in the microbiology lab can be extremely helpful in cases like this. And while you may not know for certain, you can get a little bit of a clue uh, if you see anaerobic gram-negative rods and you talk to them and they say, look, this really looks like fusobacterium, you give some, get some ideas about what you might be thinking about clinically. Yeah. And would this bug prompt you to ask the team for any specific imaging at this point? So, yeah, the classic syndrome that you think about with fusobacterium necroforum is, um, is like we said, Lemire syndrome, which is a combination of septic thrombophlebitis of the internal jugular vein, usually in the setting of a head and neck infection, which can be basically just pharyngitis or tonsillitis or tonsillar abscess, and then bacteremia. And you also often have septic emboli to other organs with the lungs being most common. Um, but for the initial kind of assessment of whether you even have that syndrome, you would wanna look at the, um, at the neck vein. So starting with a, usually an ultrasound of the neck um, to see if there's a thrombus there. And that both kind of tells you whether you're dealing with that syndrome. And then of course you, um, you, know, you, you wanna know if there's a, a thrombus there, which is something you'd be worried about. Okay, so Bia, we have some additional imaging. A repeat chest x-ray shows bilateral opacities that were read as multifocal pneumonia. We do have a CT at this point, a CT neck with contrast, which showed right facial vein and right internal jugular vein thrombophlebitis. A CT chest with contrast that showed extensive bilateral dependent consolidation. And so now we have a diagnosis of Lemire syndrome, which is also known as jugular vein separative thrombophlebitis. And interesting to note, it is named after French bacteriologist André Lumière. <laughs> Thea, can you tell us some highlights for this syndrome? Yeah, so this is a, a really interesting syndrome, and it was actually described by, I don't think my pronunciation will be quite up to that same level, but by Dr. <laughs> Lemière in 1936. And um, this, it's a really interesting article to read where he describes um, really the same syndrome we see today, which typically occurs in young adults and starts with a sore throat. And then a few days later, very high fevers and progressive clinical worsening. And in terms of kind of pathophysiology, he noted that there would often be a tonsillar, peritonsillar abscess, and that you would ultimately then get internal jugular vein thrombosis and um, bacteremia and then um, often have these kind of metastatic infectious complications, including the septic emboli to the lungs, um, to the joints, and potentially to a lot of other organs. And he identified uh, the bacterium that most commonly caused it, which at the time was called Bacillus funguliformis, but it's what we now call Fusobacterium necroforum. And I thought this was a really interesting article for a few reasons. The description, this was sort of an interesting history, a period in history in 1936 where you had 
you know, I think a pretty good understanding of pathophysiology and even of microbiology. And as you're reading this article, it sounds, you know, the case presentation sounds very familiar. And I think we often see people with, you know, almost exactly the same presentation. But then he gets to the part of the article where you kind of expect him to talk about treatment and there, there is none. And he just describes how these people almost always die within seven to 15 days. He said he's seen 20 cases and only two have survived. And it's really striking because as we've, we're seeing in this case, we certainly see young people who are very, very sick um, and even critically ill with the syndrome, but we you know, certainly don't, you know, don't expect them to die if they get medical care. And so this was this period of time when antibiotics were really not at all widely available. There were the first sulfa antibiotics maybe kind of just emerging which meant it probably wouldn't have been that useful for this bacterium anyway, um, and really not much you could do. He did say some people tried ligating the internal jugular, presumably just to keep the bacteria and the clot from propagating, but that that didn't seem to help. So anyway, I think it's a um, historically really interesting and an article that's still pretty relevant in terms of describing the syndrome that we see. Um, we still It's still not completely well, um, we don't know for certain exactly how the infection spreads from the pharynx or the oropharynx or wherever exactly the initial spot is or the tonsils um, to the IJ. There's thought that it could be lymphatic spread or hematogenous or even just kind of direct invasion across fascial planes. That part still has not been completely elucidated, but there's certainly those, um, those anatomic regions are pretty near each other. So, Yeah. And I, I think what's interesting is it it's a syndrome that we all talk about, but are there, and it's classic that we say fusobacterium, but are there other organisms that you would think of on your different, like micro differential that may cause the same presentation? Yeah. I also think it's really interesting that it's so, you know, described at least as being so specific for fusobacterium. And there are descriptions of the syndrome happening with other oral um, bacteria like Fusobacterium, and in particular oral streptococci, so viridin strep, and then oral other oral anaerobes like the bacteria formerly known as Peptostreptococcus, which I don't know if it's got a new name yet or not, but <laughs> that, that's how it's, it shows up. So, um, and sometimes those will be identified along with Fusobacterium, sometimes they'll be identified on their own. There's also been uh, some reports recently of Staph aureus actually in younger children than typical um, you know, two or three-year-olds presenting in a very similar way. So I think probably this is a somewhat more heterogeneous um, entity than we tend to think of it. We, when it's fusobacterium, we immediately recognize it and we say there's a case of Lumeris. And when something's a little different, maybe either a slightly a different vein involved or a different organism, we might not quite recognize it as being the same really classic syndrome. So I think like most things, it's not quite as, it doesn't always follow the book quite as we expect it to, but it certainly sometimes does. Yeah. Um, and so getting back to our case, how would you adjust the antibiotics now? We have our final bug and sort of decide on duration. So we we can definitely narrow our antibiotics and target our antibiotics, I should say, some now. I think, um, you know, we, we know that this is the main organism that we want to be focused on because we identified it in blood culture. It fits with this syndrome. Um, and these bacteria are usually fairly susceptible to a wide range of antibiotics. In particular, knowing it's beta-lactamase negative, it should be susceptible to, um, to old-fashioned penicillin or ampicillin. They are essentially always sensitive to metronidazole um, and to broad-spectrum uh, you know, carbapenems and things like that. So we have quite a few options for that. 
But one of the, um, a couple kind of notes in terms of treating these infections are that there's concern that even if you don't identify oral streptococci, that may be a component of infection. So at least initially, people don't always like using just metronidazole alone because you might want to get some of these other bacteria. It's not totally clear whether those would be involved in the clot or the bacteremia or whether they are more just kind of in the initial local infections. So you might not need to treat those as long, but having a beta-lactam in addition to something like metronidazole early on is, um, is often used. And then, um, then another kind of interesting twist to the treatment is that even if you have a beta-lactamase negative strain, there is some concern, there's some instances that people have described of treatment failure with using penicillin or ampicillin alone. And the theory there is that some of the, again, these oral anaerobe or oral streptococci might be producing beta-lactamases and breaking down the penicillin, even if the fusobacterium itself is susceptible to it. So again, using just ampicillin alone um, might not be completely effective. All of this, I should say that, you know, big caveat is that there's no randomized trials or even close. There's basically sort of lots of case series and, um, you know, people seem to do well with a lot of different regimens. But anyway, I think that a combination of ampicillin and metronidazole would be reasonable and that it's still relatively narrow, ampicillin or penicillin, I should say, and metronidazole. Um, but we would really expect it to be very effective against the organisms that could be causing this yeah. syndrome. Um, I I think the last question that usually comes up at the same time is uh, a, a bit tough and somewhat controversial, and it's about whether or not to anticoagulate these patients. You know, I, I don't think we're usually making the sole decision on this, but I was just curious on your thoughts on that for these patients. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And certainly, at least, um, you know, where I practice, we're lucky enough to have hematologists, uh, you know, right, right there all the time. And so, uh, like you say, we're not usually making this decision from the ID standpoint, but I think it's worth thinking about. And I think the bottom line is there's just very little data about whether um, there's a benefit to anticoagulation in this setting. In my you know, personal experience, I've usually seen it done. And yet it's something that if you kind of look it up, you usually see, you know, recommendations saying there's no evidence for it. So um, I think it's hard to say. Certainly there's sort of a in my mind as a non-hematologist, there's this, you know, enormous clot kind of uh, seems tempting to anticoagulate, but I think it's really like much of the treatment in this area, I think is really informed kind of by tradition and what people have done that's worked all right. And I think that's very much true for our antibiotic choices as well. Um, so I think it ends up being a little bit uh, not the most evidence-based decision on, on that front, as it is on our antibiotic front in this case. Yeah, yeah as I say, I feel like um, sometimes when you pick antibiotics, you have to like be thinking about your exit plan. And for me, it's hard to picture what the exit plan is for anticoagulation, because we certainly have seen, uh, I've seen both where patients were, were anticoagulated and not. Mm -hmm. This patient happened to be anticoagulated with the assistance of hematology. And fortunately, this patient improves and is exubated and has really a full recovery. Um, so we have a happy ending for this one. <laughs> I wanted to see if there are other things that you guys wanted to emphasize or highlight, because this is a really high yield case, but sort of a dramatic presentation of it. One other thing that I think you actually mentioned was just the, the decision about duration of antibiotics. And again, this is one of these areas where you look up, you know, what people have done, and they've gone for anywhere from, you know, one week to 10 weeks or so, you know, something like that, some enormous range. 
and it's you know never been studied and we don't really know um it's sort of then it's a little bit of a tough entity because it's an endovascular infection but it's not um you know it's obviously not endocarditis exactly but you have a big infected clot and it's um you know, on the one hand, I think you usually see pretty rapid recovery and probably whatever it was initially happening up in the oropharynx is probably well taken care of. But uh, it's a little hard, I think, sometimes to go shorter when you have this infected endovascular focus. So I think uh, some, you know, something on the order of four weeks ends up being, uh, I think, what I think something that would be reasonable in this case. My gut tells me probably you could do shorter, but when it's actually, you know, when you're actually in that position making the decision, I think sometimes psychologically it's a little bit hard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I will say one thing I learned from reading uh, that I did not know before is that I always think of pulmonary as sort of the the complication or the sequelae from their infection. But I learned that large joints are sort of like the second most commonly affected site after the lungs in, in this syndrome. So I thought that was cool to learn. I mean, obviously, these are all from different like case series that use like multiple different definitions, but <laughs> still, there seems to be a signal that that's like the number two spot that the um, infection sort of spreads to. It is interesting because you don't usually think of large joints being one of your. Yeah, it's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. And Mel, anything else that you wanted to highlight? Yeah, um, I, as you were saying, Sarah, it is interesting that sometimes drainage can even be indicated, you know, if there are abscesses formed. Um, and just from my standpoint, it's definitely been a syndrome that does come off, come up often in practice um, with these previously healthy adolescents that present quite dramatically. So it's always something to uh, keep in mind and ensure that you have cultures and uh, sufficient imaging to help with your diagnosis. Yeah. Oh, we didn't talk about, I don't think we talked about it. Um, do you think throat culture is useful on a patient that maybe you don't have positive blood cultures for, but you're suspicious of this syndrome? You know, I, I think you'd have to, you'd have, you might have trouble isolating this from a typical, yeah. um, you know, kind of all pathogens throat culture where it wouldn't be anaerobic. So if you you know, we're actually doing like a drainage of a tonsillar abscess or something, it would be mm -hmm. worth it. But um, I think your recovery would not be, um, would not be great with kind of a typical throat swab. Yeah. Although that does remind me of kind of a related point, actually, in terms of um, throat swabs and sore throat, is that one, um, I think kind of an interesting point is, is that this organism is often susceptible to penicillin or ampicillin or amoxicillin, but is not susceptible to azithromycin. So sometimes when people are given a presumptive diagnosis of strep throat with either a negative strep test or strep isn't done, or they're a strep carrier, and they actually have fusobacterium infection, and then you treat with, they get treated with azithromycin for whatever reason, which often is kind of a supposed penicillin allergy, which may or may not have been a real allergy, you don't get any effect on the fusobacterium. So there's some kind of speculation that we might be seeing more of this now because people are more off, less often being treated with penicillin or amoxicillin for what was presumed to be strep throat, but might actually have been a fusobacterial throat, so to speak, and then they end up progressing further. So it's one more reason to to always question whether penicillin or amoxicillin allergies are real or not, because you might be actually missing a bug that we were perhaps treating a lot of the time before. Yeah. Oh, well, I am so excited I had a co-host today and our wonderful guest. Thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you for having us. 
Awesome. It was really fun. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> I'm so grateful to our Febrile listeners and so happy to have Melanie as a co-host today. Thanks to Dr. Thea Brennan Crone for teaching us. And I would love to have other ID friends write and co-host episodes like Melanie did today. So please reach out if you're interested. Don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com for our post-show consult notes, which summarize key points from the episode and provide links to articles and references. You can also follow Febrile on Twitter or Instagram so you don't miss any of the graphics that accompany and summarize the shows. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.